Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Illinois. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Katrina Smith was a beautiful and quirky, passionate 30-year-old who fell in love and married a businessman who was 14 years her senior. He didn't look 14 years older, though, and he didn't always act it either. Her husband, Todd Smith, came with a ready-made family. He had three daughters from a previous marriage, two of which were already in college. And as close in age as they and Katrina may have seemed, they adored her and considered her their second mom. Katrina loved being a stepmom. She was young enough to be their friend, but mature enough to still be a motherly figure, and they all clicked immediately. Katrina and Todd had been happily married for seven years until October of 2012, when the outward fairy tale of their life started to crumble. No one else knew, but Todd had been indicted by the federal government for what looks like an elderly mail scam. His part of the scam totaled almost a million dollars. Katrina had always been the breadwinner. She always had a steady job, which wasn't exactly the case for Todd. Prior to being in insurance sales, he was a DJ. It was such a strange career jump for him that a lot of people actually questioned whether he was licensed or not. Most people assumed that he was the head of the household, but in reality, Katrina was the glue that held everything together. Anyways, the scheming and scamming wasn't the life that Katrina had planned for herself, and she was still young, so she decided she wanted out. She contacted a friend of hers who had moved out of her condo in Roscoe, about a 10-minute drive from her and Todd's cute little rancher in McChesney Park, and asked her friend if she could stay there for a while. Katrina wanted a divorce. Without batting an eyelash, her friend gave her the keys and Katrina moved in, signifying the beginning of the end of her and Todd's marriage. On October 23, 2012, Katrina was scheduled to work, but on her way to work, she was actually scheduled to go to an interview for a new job. She was done with her old life and wanted a fresh start, and she was a doer. But Katrina didn't show up for either. And like so many of these cases go, everyone knew something was up because Katrina wasn't the kind to no call, no show, not to work, and definitely not to an interview where her first impression would be her only impression. Todd texted Katrina and didn't hear anything back, so he called her sister to see if she had heard from her and she hadn't. So the panic in everyone set in and he walked into the Winnebago Police Department and reported her missing. The report, though, was interesting to say the least. Todd told police that he had seen Katrina the night before, that she had been running some errands and had gotten back sometime around 7 p.m. And when I say that she had gotten back, Todd claims that she had come back to the house where he said he and Katrina still lived at together. But then he tells police that around 9 p.m. on a Monday night, she went out again to run another errand. He couldn't seem to recall what that 9 p.m. errand was for, but that didn't matter, right? The issue here was that he hadn't seen or heard from her since. No one had. Todd was the last person to see Katrina alive, even though they didn't live together, and he was trying to sell a story to the police that they still did. 
Todd told police that Katrina had planned on coming back home that night, but that she never showed. Had they been happily married, you would assume that he'd be wondering where his wife was long before she didn't show up for that interview or to work. But Todd didn't report her missing until the following afternoon. You can imagine that everyone's side-eye was focused in one direction. Police did not sit on this missing persons report. They hit the ground running and started contacting all of her family and friends to see if they'd seen or heard from her. They got a description of her vehicle and started interviewing anyone and everyone in her life to get a feel for what the truth really was. Was Todd a loving husband who was concerned about his missing wife? Was she trying to escape the legal battle he was facing in federal court? Or had something terrible happened to Katrina? It took less than 24 hours for police to figure out that Todd and Katrina were not happily married and had been separated for weeks now. In fact, it took them no time to track down the owner of the condo Katrina had been staying in, who was more than willing to cooperate with investigators and correct the story Todd had tried to sell them. And with that, a boyfriend appeared. Not only was Katrina done with her marriage, she had already moved on. She had started dating a man named Guy. Guy was actually married himself, but worked with Katrina. Everyone they worked with knew about the affair, but not because either of them had told anyone about it. A couple of weeks before Katrina was reported missing, a masked man had showed up in the parking lot of where the two worked and placed flyers on their cars that read, Guy fucking cat, misspelling cat. Her name starts with a K, but the flyer spelled it with a C. According to an article on Press Reader, it went on to say he was able to fuck Katrina from HR in record time. Again, misspelling her name. Yeah, she's married, but when I turned on the charm, her legs fell open. The flyer was clearly written by a man who didn't want people to think he knew Katrina well enough to spell her name right and then went in and wrote it in first person as if it were Guy trying to expose his own affair while insulting Katrina. Very poorly executed. Obviously, police needed to talk to Guy, so within 24 hours of her disappearance, they tracked him down and interviewed him. Guy didn't have the most respectable past with women. His marriage seemed to be on the rocks too, but not necessarily because of infidelity. Guy had been arrested for domestic battery against his wife. According to Crime Watch Daily, he'd hit his wife over the head, pushed her to the ground, and choked her before being arrested. You can imagine that raised some concerns with everyone, police, family, and friends included, but Guy was at work when Katrina went missing and there was security footage to prove it. So, Guy's off the list and the side eye is pointed right back at Todd. At 7.50 that evening, the day she was reported missing, authorities found Katrina's car. It was abandoned at the intersection of Abispo and Ventura, a pretty residential area right beside Shoemaker Park, less than a three-minute drive from Todd's home in McChesney Park, where he said he had last seen her. People who live in the area said that they'd actually seen it there the night before. To boot, a local posted on the Find Katrina Facebook page that her car had been found right behind the said poster's parents' house and that her brother had heard a scream around 4 a.m. that morning, but that post disappeared about as fast as it went up. It's worth mentioning, though. 
The search was on. 40 degrees or not, volunteers took off work and canceled their plans to start searching the area for Katrina or any signs of her, and it didn't take long. The following day, Wednesday, October 24th, they found Katrina's purse. It was just yards away from her car in a field between Abispo Road and Ralston Road. The two roads run parallel to one another, so it's as if someone dumped the car, wanted to avoid being seen on the street, went through the field, and dumped her purse there. The day after that, her little black flip phone was found on the ground in the 700 block of Ralston Road, right near the elementary school. To get from Todd's home in McChesney Park to the intersection of Abispo and Ventura where Katrina's car was found, you'd likely hop on Highway 251 and take a left onto Ralston. All of Katrina's belongings are tracking from her vehicle on Abispo towards Ralston Road, then down Ralston Road back towards Highway 251. It's as if they were going back the same exact way they would have come if they were coming right from the place she was reportedly last seen alive, and it's not looking good for Todd. But then it gets a little more strange. That same day, someone driving down South Main finds a wallet in the road and turns it into a nearby business. The wallet belonged to Katrina, the wallet that would have likely had to have been taken out of her purse just to be left behind as another breadcrumb. But this time, it was a 20-minute drive south from her car purse and phone, down Highway 251, past Todd's McChesney home in Rockford, not far from the Rock River. Her friends, family, and locals feel like there have been too many bits and pieces of evidence found and that there has to be more, so on Friday, they head back to Shoemaker Park and fan out, keeping their eyes open for anything. And lo and behold, they find something. Right between Abispo and Ralston, near where her purse had been found, not from her car, they find some paper towels that look like they're soaked in blood. Police rush to the scene, take them into evidence, and send them off to the lab, but say that it might take weeks before they have any answers as to whether or not the substance on the paper towels is blood, and if it is, if it belongs to Katrina. No one is about to give up now, and a search is scheduled to start again the following morning at 10 a.m., and they plan to search until the sun goes down. Todd even pitches in. He hasn't made any public statements yet, but people do take note of his presence. The Find Katrina Facebook page is growing by the second, and so is the size of her search parties. They update the public on where to meet each day and set the ground rules for the searches, like how if you find anything, not to touch it and call police immediately. They're working closely with the police and seem extremely confident in the work they're doing to find their friend and want to make sure that their help is never a hindrance to the case, and it honestly never seems like it is. In a lot of cases, you see police asking the public not to do their own searching, but these two groups work together seamlessly in Katrina's case, and it's amazing to see what can be done when there's this relationship between law enforcement and the community. On Saturday, while the community is searching around Shoemaker Park again, there's a noticeable police presence further south at Latham Bridge. This time, police seem to be using sonar to search the water closer to where Katrina's wallet had been found, while everyone else continues their search where everything else had been recovered. 
As the sun goes down and it starts getting dark, the public, who's been keeping an eye on police presence and listening to the police scanner, notice that there are now crime scene vehicles parked in front of Todd's home, the home he claims to have last seen Katrina at. The public has several questions, but none that can be answered, so they just sit back and watch. And it's at this moment when the tone of the investigation starts to change. The following day, there isn't the same organized search starting at Shoemaker Park, and it's just overall eerily quiet. It's like the community knows that they don't know something, and they're waiting on word from law enforcement about what they should do next. So, off to Facebook they go. On October 29th, the Find Katrina Facebook page makes a post encouraging people to continue searching for her and to continue searching for evidence, but to stop posting where they're going to be searching because they think the perpetrator might be watching. This is big because now we're publicly talking about a perpetrator. A perpetrator would mean that they don't think Katrina just ran from Todd's financial and legal troubles. They don't think that she just ran off to start a new life. They think something happened to her and at the hands of someone who they think may be watching their page. The admins of her missing persons page are her lifelong friend from as far back as elementary school and her stepdaughter, Todd's daughter. They make the same request the following day, reiterating that they think whoever is behind Katrina's disappearance may be watching the page and following the searches and to not publicly post where they plan to go looking. They don't want the perpetrator to find any discarded evidence before they do. These searches start to seem less and less like they're searching for a living Katrina, a search to bring her home, and start looking more like a recovery effort. Finally, after a full week of his wife being missing, Todd Smith makes a public statement and pulls a full-blown Chris Watts. He tells WIFR, she said, I will be back later, and that was the last we heard from her. Who's we? He continues on saying, I just want her to call or come home or let us know she's safe. Again, giving major Chris Watts vibes, knowing good and well she doesn't have a cell phone to call anyone from. He tells the outlet that the police have it all wrong, everyone has it all wrong, that him and Katrina aren't separated, she was just house-sitting for a friend, and that him and Katrina are happily married, have been for seven years, and he's devastated. We all just made the same face. The separation isn't a question. The boyfriend isn't a question. The house he claimed she was just sitting hadn't been lived in in months because Katrina's friend had moved out of it. There was no house to sit. There was a house she moved into to get away from Todd. And even though everyone knew this, Todd still chose to try and sell that story to the public. Now, more than ever, everyone's eyes were on him, and it was only going to get worse. Sometimes, saying nothing is better than giving the public what they want, and that's especially true when you're Todd Smith. Because Todd Smith used to be Todd Rapperger, and it took his bullshit statement and failure to produce believable devastation for other news agencies to start doing some digging, and when they did, they hit the fucking motherlode. 
Later that day, WREX reports that Todd Smith, formerly known as Todd Rapperger, blew up his fucking house when he was 17. In 1985, he unscrewed a gas pipe in his house and left. A few hours later, the house exploded. Everyone was able to get out in time, but he was convicted of the arson and sentenced to 30 months of probation and required to get inpatient treatment for whatever the fuck would compel anybody to do that. He actually made a statement back in the day explaining why he did what he did and, well, he said that his family had been nagging and yelling at him so he figured he'd try a scare tactic. A scare tactic that could have killed them all but thankfully didn't. The fire actually caused quite the stir back in the day, so in 1992, he decided to change his last name. But changing your name doesn't change the past, and people don't just forget things because they happened in the 80s, and the reports about them aren't as readily available as they are these days. The day after all of this gets put out into the public again, the police are back out at Todd's house, but this time with a search warrant signed by a judge. And this isn't your run-of-the-mill, I'm-here-to-look-around kind of search. This means that the police had to write up a probable cause statement with justifiable reasons as to why they need to search the specific areas they plan to search and confiscate any specific items they want to confiscate. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The search warrant wasn't because the media had done some digging. The police had to have been working on this for some time, which means that they know something. Everyone else has their suspicions, but the police know something. Crime scene vans are seen at Todd's house not for two hours or even four. They were at the house for more than eight hours, and everyone is left to wonder, what did they go in for? What have they found? And what are they taking with them? Todd's few loved ones start to rally behind him, going on an internet rampage in an attempt to defend him. Some say he'd never hurt Katrina. Some people say that they should be looking harder at Katrina's boyfriend. And all of it reeks of desperation. His stepbrother, not the brother who was in the house he caught on fire, asks everyone who gives a shit about Todd to share a message. Press conference tomorrow at 4 p.m. at Shoemaker Park. Light will be shed on the past. Please come out in full force and show support for my brother Todd. Everyone and anyone, build an army of love. The truth about the fire and those involved will come out, and we will squash the rumors so we can continue to focus on the mission to find Katrina Smith. Please, everyone. 
What light can be shed? Homeboy was convicted for the fire. He did what he did, and this press conference doesn't involve police. So it's not exactly a press conference. It's a proposed gathering to try and defend the husband of the missing woman who can't seem to get his story straight at the park where all of her searches have been and where most of the known evidence in her case has been found. It rubs people the wrong way in about two-tenths of a second, and before the press conference could happen, it's canceled. They tell the public that they won't be having it anymore, and that instead, they're taking all of the information about Todd's past to the police. The police who would already know everything because they were the ones who charged him for the fire in the first place, but sure. A simple, that was insensitive and I'm sorry would have probably sufficed. Todd's other brother, the one from the fire, feels compelled to make a statement of his own, and make a statement he does. He posted the following on a new website, www.convicttoddsmith.com. To the friends and family of Todd Smith, keep being supportive. That's what friends and family should do. My call to the rest of the world is be suspicious. Watch him. Expect him to run. When you see him in public, take note for it may be relevant later. As Todd begins to feel the walls closing in, he will snap again and someone else will get hurt. I'm glad I'm not close enough to be at risk. There are clearly two very different versions of Todd Smith or Todd Rapperger. The searches lead into November, and on the 1st, instead of that shitty-ass little press conference, a prayer vigil is held at Shoemaker Park. The following day, they're out searching again, but this time Katrina's brother, who's in the Special Forces, is leading the search, and it's a lot more organized. Instead of searching around Shoemaker Park, they search Rock Cut State Park, which is about five miles east of where Katrina's car, purse, and phone were found. WTVO reports that they found gloves, more paper towels, duct tape, and a shovel, but there's no way to know if any of the items are related to Katrina yet. Over the next few days, the searching really ramps up. Helicopters are seen flying overhead, and locals see first responders using sonar boats to search the banks of the Rock River. And while they don't find anything, someone else does. On November 9th, a little after lunch, an off-duty fireman who was fishing in the Rock River near Route 2 and Townline Road, about 10 miles south of where Katrina's wallet was found, noticed something caught on a log. When he got closer, he realized it was the body of a female that was severely decomposed, covered in algae. Her clothes had been so worn by the water that he couldn't tell what color they used to be. The police rushed to the scene, and while people thought it had to be Katrina, there was some hope that maybe it wasn't her, that she couldn't possibly be in the state the fireman described in just the few weeks she'd been missing. The woman in the river couldn't be identified just by looking at her, so she was taken to the medical examiner's office where WTVO reported she would be examined the following morning at 9 a.m. So everyone waited. And quicker than anyone was prepared for, the medical examiner, through dental records, confirmed that the body in the Rock River was, in fact, the body of Katrina Smith, and now this missing persons investigation was about to become so, so much more. But all of that is going to have to wait until next week. 
For all photos and maps pertaining to this case, check out Katrina's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about the twists and turns that are this case. Special thank you to Lindsay Ann for her help in researching this case. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at Patreon.com/BigMadTrueCrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you part two of this case a week from today and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.